Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from John 18, 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You may be seated. As you see it, let me pray for us. Father, we come now before you and we ask, to, we ask for you to speak to us. Father, we want, to, we want to see Jesus in your word this morning. We want to be impacted by what you have to say to us, Lord. And so please soften our hearts and our minds to be receptive. Father, make much of Jesus in us, Lord, and in your word this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm part of the staff team here. If you have a Bible, I do invite you to open it up to John 18. John 18, 1 to 11, the passage that was read, is going to be where we're going to spend our time this morning. I think you'll find it very helpful to, to follow along and be looking at it your, yourself this morning. Well, there is a, a reason Easter is the high point of the Christian calendar. The story of Christianity and of history through which the story of the Bible unfolds is in many ways a story of two melodies. The one melody is the glory of God. You have the infinite creator who made all things. He is eternal and before all things. There is none like him. And so God is gradually and ever increasingly displaying his glory out into the world. On the other hand, the other melody is one of God's love. God is love, the Bible tells us. 
God is loving his creation and especially his humanity, which he made in his own image. And so God is caring for, protecting, and and blessing the human race. Now the problem is, at times, these two melodies seem to be in tension with one another. How can God, who loves humanity, how can God love humanity when at the same time humanity is in many ways opposed to the glory of God? How can he love humanity when that humanity is opposed to the very thing God is after? We do not seek to honor God. Often we seek to honor ourselves. We do not live for God's glory. We live for our own glory. We do not live in honor of God, but instead we live a life of rebellion. This tension, in many ways, reaches a climax in the chapter immediately preceding our passage this morning. Listen to the way John 17 verse 1 begins. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then listen how the last verse ends. John 17, 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Glory and love. And the way that is resolved is in Easter. Easter is the high point of the Christian story because it is the the moment where these tensions are resolved. And this morning, I want to look at the beginning of that resolution. John 18 is now Jesus carrying out his answer to that prayer that he just uttered. Glorify me and love them. And what we see, as Jake alluded to, can in many ways be described as ridiculous. American playwright Thornton Wilder uh, pictured a scene, it's fictitious, but with a couple characters in our passage this morning. The the two characters are Jesus and Malchus. Malchus, the the person here who had his ear cut off, is this time in, in Thornton Wilder's play, standing outside the throne room of God in heaven, and he's banging on Jesus's throne room door. And this is what we read in his play. Malchus says, Please, sir, excuse me being so hasty, but I had to speak to you about something. Jesus says, You are displeased with heaven? Malchus says, Oh, no, no, sir. Except one thing. Jesus says, what is it? What is it that you want of me? Malchus replies, well, as you know, I was the high priest's servant in the garden when you were taken. Sir, it's, it's hardly worth mentioning. Jesus says, no, 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 speak out. Well, Malchus says, one of your fellows took out his sword and he cut off my ear. And because I'm in your book, someone is always reading about me and thinking about me. And what they think is that I'm ridiculous. Ah, Jesus says, I see. You want your name to be erased from the book. To which Malchus replies, yes, sir. Jesus says, your wish be granted. But Malchus, you need to know something. I am ridiculous too. 
Now, I understand it may be, it may seem irreverent to speak of God as being ridiculous, as silly. And, 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 and my point is not to make a mockery of what God does. My, my point is that the way God resolves this tension between his glory and his love for us is so unexpected so unimaginable that perhaps it is actually helpful to speak of it as though it is ridiculous. So this morning, here is my outline. Ridiculous instigation, ridiculous inactivity, and ridiculous intimacy. It's a ridiculous outline in more ways than one. Okay, here we go. Point one, ready? Ridiculous instigation. Look at verse one again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples had entered. So picture the scene with me for a second. Jesus has just finished having a Passover meal in the top floor of a room or a house in Jerusalem. Jesus leaves that upper room, it's Thursday night, and he descends, he goes down the hill, right? Jerusalem is set up on a hill, so Jesus makes his way down into the valley where he crosses this brook, Kidron. It's really like a small little creek that runs outside the city of Jerusalem. He crosses over, and then he begins to make his way up the the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is not a mountain as we think of mountains here in the Lower Mainland. It's a medium-sized hill. And so Jesus is making his way up this hill, and halfway up the mountain, I've been there, is a, a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not a large garden. It's a privately owned garden that would have had a a small little wall around it. And Jesus has been given permission by the owner to go there with his disciples. Now, why does he go to that garden? Verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So why does he go to that garden? Well, Jesus had been to that garden before. He had often frequented that garden. That garden is located nearby his friend's house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so he would go to that garden to to be alone, to, to pray. And so Judas, knowing this, having been there before with Jesus, goes, oh, I know where Jesus will be. He'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, so what does Judas do? Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. That, that language there of band of soldiers is the Greek word spira. This is a Roman cohort. It consists of, at minimum, 200 soldiers, all the way up to 600 men. So there, there are minimum 200 people coming with Judas. In addition to that, he procures some officers, we read here. Now, these are by no means the equivalent of Roman soldiers, but they're also no mall cop either. They're somewhere in the middle. They're, they're, who, they're, they're security guards for the temple. And so Judas brings all of these people with him, and then look at what happens, verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Uh, Notice here, 
Jesus goes to them. Jesus is the initiator. He, he, he instigates it. He knows why they're come, it says. That's why he goes to that garden. So that they could arrest him. A, a while ago, a mobile company that starts with the letter T and rhymes with Bellis appeared at my front door. And it's one of those where they ring the doorbell and you have no idea who it is. And so I answer the door and there is Telus standing uh, and, and they want to sell me home security. And for these people, they're experts at what they do. They just, they don't let you get a word in, right? You're just about, you feel like there's a, a slight little gap in their sentence. You can cut them off and they just pick the whole conversation up. Anyways, we're, we're going at it for 20 minutes now. I swear, if all they said was, you know, if you had bought home security, you would have seen on your camera that it was me and you would have not answered the door. That, that probably would have sold it for me. Um, but anyways, look, I, if I had known it was Talus, I would have not shown up. I would have just ignored it. Jesus is here. He knows what's coming. He, he knows their intention, and still he goes to them. This is no surprise here. Jesus is no victim in this case. Jesus is not being captured. He's willingly carrying out his own destiny. And, 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 and please, please see this. Jesus is fully in control of the situation. There's only one person who asks all the questions here. It's Jesus. They've come to arrest him. And if you read this section, he does all the questioning. They're constantly on their back foot. Jesus is in total control. And please don't think here that Jesus is even slightly unaware of what will come to him. This is not a case where Jesus goes, okay, you know what? Sure, I'm innocent. It's fine. They'll capture me. I'll, I'll plead my case and they'll, and they'll let me go. No. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. You, you see, um, it, it's the Passover season right now. And because of that, Jerusalem would swell to, to millions of people. Pilgrims from all, all around Israel would, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the Passover feast. And, and part of that celebration was bringing a lamb up to the Temple Mount and, and slaughtering it there. One historian says that um, a, a few years later, after Jesus here, there were 256,000 lambs slaughtered on the temple. 256,000 lambs. And what, that, what would happen is that blood would flow down the altar and over the walls, and it would make its way down to the Brook Kidron. Most of the time, that Brook Kidron that Jesus crosses over is dry. A, f a few times a year in the raining season, it, it flows with water. But right now, that brook flows red. And Jesus crosses over that brook. And he knows that that blood flowing from the lamb is a symbol of what he will about to do. You see, um, 
John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said, behold, that's Jesus, the the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sin of the world. Jesus knows that by being captured, he is becoming that Lamb who will be slaughtered. And Jesus initiates it. He instigates it. John, John, 17, John 10, verse 17 and 18 say this. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus lays down his own life. And notice how much force these guards come with, right? Verse 3 says, they come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, the, The reason they need lanterns is not to identify Jesus in this case. It would have been a a full moon. That's why every year at Easter when we do baptisms, the tide is way out there, right? So there's a full moon. You would have been able to see that it's Jesus. If it was a children's book, Jesus would have been wearing a white kimono. It would have been very easy to identify him. No, no, they they bring lanterns and torches because they think Jesus is going to run and hide. They bring weapons because they think Jesus is going to put up a fight. You see, in their minds, for Jesus to be captured and killed is for Jesus to lose. But for Jesus to be captured and killed is for him to win. Which means this. The hardships that we endure, the the brokenness and sin that we face, the the wrong that is done to us does not have to be an ultimate wrong. The, the, the bad done to us does not necessarily mean that becomes an ultimate bad. Now, I don't, I don't know what you've been through. I, I don't know what you're currently going through. I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant here. All I'm trying to say and all I'm trying to show you from this text is that maybe there is a greater purpose behind what God is doing in your life. Uh, See, this passage doesn't give us a reason for suffering and evil in this world. It doesn't. But it does give us a reason for what it's not. Suffering and evil does not mean God is not in control, this passage says. Suffering does not mean God does not care. And suffering does not mean hardship is for your ultimate demise. If God can take the very death of his son and use it for good, then he can take the hardships you've endured and turn those around and also use them for good. The the whole world had gathered there in that garden. Jew and Gentile, heaven and hell, God and Satan, and Jesus won by instigating his own death. Secondly, Ridiculous inactivity. Not not only does Jesus initiate his own death, he does nothing when he could have done everything and anything to stop it. Verse 4 and 5. Look at it once more with me. Then Jesus, 
knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, maybe you notice in your Bible there, when it says, I am he, right? They ask him, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replies, I am he. Maybe your Bible has a footnote beside it there, or, or that he is italicized. The reason is, is in the original language, the words are just, I am. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. Now, the, the translators add the word he there just for the sake of our, the flow and our ability to understand it in English. On one hand, Jesus can be saying, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He could say, that's me, right? I am he. But on the other hand, there might be something else go, going on there. See, notice what happens after Jesus says, I am. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is hundreds of battle-hardened Roman soldiers. The, the finest soldiers in the entire world. Jesus says, I am, and they fall flat on their backs. They go down like dominoes. This is, the, this is not the only time we hear Jesus say, I am, in the Gospel of John. Elsewhere, we read it with a predicate. So Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But sometimes, Jesus just says, I am, with nothing else they're attached to it. So in John chapter 6, Jesus' disciples are caught in a storm. They're crossing uh, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus appears to them, and he says, fear not, I am. And all of a sudden, we read that they're on the other side of the lake. In John 8, uh, a bunch of Pharisees have come to Jesus, and they're accusing him, Jesus, you, you are doing the work of the devil. And Jesus goes, that's crazy. Why would the devil be trying to honor God? And that's what I'm doing. That, that would be counterproductive. And then Jesus says to them, don't you know Abraham longed to see this day? And they go, how silly are you, Jesus? You're barely 50 years old. You're not 50 years old. What do you mean you saw Abraham? And then Jesus replies, before Abraham was, I am. And you know what the next thing they do is? They pick up stones to throw at Jesus and kill him. Because when Jesus says, I am, he is uttering the name that God gave Moses back in Egypt, back in Exodus. Moses appears before the burning bush. God is speaking to him out of the burning bush. And Moses says, okay, I'm going to go back to the Israelites. I'm going to tell them, God sent me. What, what do I tell them your name is? And God says, you tell them, I am has sent you. Now, Jesus here, they ask him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And the glory of God shines out through a little crack and down the soldiers fall on their back. Now, are they totally aware, these soldiers, of Jesus' identity in that moment? I'm not sure. M maybe not. 
But as one commentator put it, they are acting more appropriately than they know. Throughout the Bible, when people glimpse the glory of God, they fall down. So in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel appears into the throne room of God, and what happens is he falls on his face. When Moses is talking to God in the burning bush, and, Jesus, and God says, I am, we read that Moses hides his face. And now Jesus says, I am, and the soldiers fall down once more. One, one commentator puts it this way. He says, they are trying to capture God Almighty, the great I am, with swords and lanterns, which is like trying to catch a shark with a thread. It's like trying to stop a tank with a tissue. And he lets them. Why does he let them capture him? L- look at verse 6 and following. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, listen, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he, that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Why does he let them capture him? So that his disciples might go free. But he could have done that by reducing these soldiers to ash, right? He, he just threw them on the ground. It, it feels like then it, he has to be doing more than just physically saving them. Because he could have done that another way. Jesus here is also after their spiritual and eternal safety. You see... We are unable to stand before God, yes, because he is absolutely almighty, but also because he is perfectly holy. And we're not. God is the infinitely good and perfect one, the the flawless one, and we are not. And so when 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 we come before him, we fall down. Partly in shame and in guilt. We don't, we don't stand before him as though we are vindicated or, or justified. We, we fall down because we know that we deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. The, the perfectly, infinitely holy one cannot be in the presence of sinners like us. And so Jesus lets them capture him so that he might spiritually save them. He, he endures the wrath that we deserve. J- Jesus pays the judgment that we ought to pay, which is why verse 11 says this. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That cup is the cup of wrath. And instead of having it poured out on sinful humanity, Jesus says, pour it out on me. Jesus captured so that we might go free. Jesus beaten so that we might be healed. Jesus forsaken so that we might be welcomed. Jesus killed so that we might be loved. Jesus despised so we might live. Why does Jesus let them capture him? So that one day we might stand in his presence. 
It's ridiculous. He does nothing when he could have done everything. Thirdly, ridiculous intimacy. I think most ridiculous of all is the love that Jesus shows in this passage. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Uh, Jesus shows love first to Malchus. Malchus, the the, uh, servant of the high priest who's gone after Jesus to capture him and kill him. And yet Jesus heals him. There's the love then that Jesus shows to his disciples. He's captured so that they might go free. But most amazing of all is the love that Jesus shows to Peter. Peter has, by this time, been a disciple of Jesus for three years. Right? He's heard all of Jesus' teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Repay evil with good. Lay down your life for your enemy. And yet here they are, come to capture Jesus, and Peter pulls out his sword and just starts swinging. Like if I'm Jesus at this point, I just go, you know what? Everyone else goes free, but Peter, you can have him. He, he didn't get it. Just, you can take Peter. And yet, that's not what Jesus does. He loves him. More than that, Peter, the very next night, or the very, just that night, is going to deny Jesus three times. He's his closest friend. He's supposed to be. And yet he denies Jesus three times. All this bravery, and yet the truth comes out, Peter is a coward. But, but most of all, do you realize that of all the people in this garden, G, uh, Peter is the greatest enemy? Think about it for a second. Who there is truly presenting an obstacle to Jesus? It's not not the soldiers. Not Judas. Right? They're, They're there trying to kill Jesus, which is what Jesus wants and intends for them to do. It's Peter that stands in Jesus' way. Peter is the one who stands in the way of Jesus' glory and love. Painter Jean-Jacques Tussaud, in the 19th century, he drew, painted, I guess you paint, you don't draw, you don't, you paint paintings, not draw paintings. He painted two paintings of this scene in the garden. I'm going to throw them up on the screen. The, the first one is where Peter is front and center. Biceps bulging, out with a sword, swinging at Malchus, and there in the background fuzzy, a a little bit blurred, is Jesus. But he's obscured. Again, if it wasn't for the white kimono, you wouldn't know it's him. But then he paints another, another painting, and it's this one. And this one, Jesus is front and center. He's healing Malchus's ear. He's no longer blurry, and all his features are clearly seen. What does the sword in Peter's hand represents. It it represents an attempt to save himself. 
It, it represents an attempt to earn his approval before God and to minimize the necessity for Jesus. And if that's the case, how often do we have swords in our hands? We, 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 we try to corral all our good things and if, we're, and if we're not a follower of God, we're not a follower of Jesus, we just, we just go, those good things, that determines my value in life. That determines my security in life. That determines my well-being and my worth. Or if we're religious, sometimes we take all those good things and we go, there you go, God, now you have to accept me. Because look at all the things I've done for you. And all we're doing in that moment is obscuring the glory of God. Let, let me try to come full circle. Those two melodies there, God's glory and God's love for us, the way that is resolved is this. God shows his glory most spectacularly in his love for us. That's what no one saw coming is that God would glorify himself by loving you. And so, so the way we actually highlight, the way God highlights his glory is when we come to him, not with things in our hands and go, now accept me, God, but when, when we come open-handed, bare-handed, with nothing there. And we go, God, just because of grace would you love me. Just because of mercy, not by anything I've done, not by any merit of my own, but purely by who you are and what you've done for me. Accept me because of that. And so we come not trying to earn our place before God. We come with faith, with trust. God, you saved me by grace alone. That's how God receives glory. That's how we receive his love. God loves the worst of people, messed up people, people who deny him and people who once rejected their need for him. So let me end with this story. Believing that God loves us despite all our wrong, all our brokenness, all our rebellion is hard to believe sometimes. It is. It's just, it's just a constant battle. To believe that Jesus loves me purely because he loves me. Period. Um, in the movie, The Adam Project, uh, at the end of the movie, I won't, I won't give any spoilers, um, I think the climax of the movie happens when a father is trying to tell his son just how much he loves him. Son, I love you. And, and this is how that scene goes. The father says, you're my son, Adam and I love you. You're my boy, and I love you. Okay, says the son. No, no, no. I love you, says the father. From the first moment I saw you, and that will never change. I get it. No, no, no. Adam, you're my boy. Dad, stop it. No, you're amazing, and I love you. I get it, dad. To which the dad responds, I don't think you do. I am proud of you, and I love you, and you need to know that inside of your heart. 
Please hear me. As ridiculous as it sounds in that moment, for that dad to again and again say, I love you. I love you. I love you. Please get this. I love you. I love you. I love you. I get it. No, you don't. I love you. I love you. I love you. The reason he says it over and over and over again, the reason he has to sound to the point of ridiculous is because we don't actually get it. We don't actually feel deep down in our hearts, 24-7, just how much God loves you. And so Jesus says, okay, to try and show you, to help you understand just how much I value you and care about you and want you for my own, he says, I'm going to do the ridiculous for you. I'm going to instigate my own death. I'm going to do nothing when I could do everything. And I'm going to love the worst of people, people like Peter, People like me and people like you. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to hear it again that you love us. God, it's a, it's a battle every day in our, in our brokenness, in our sin. We feel the guilt and shame what we do. And we doubt whether or not you still value us, God. Help us to, in that moment, hear that you love us. Help us to see, Lord, that you saved Peter, not because of his greatness, not because of his courage, Lord, but in spite of that. Father, I pray that this love would transform us. It would just create this this firm foundation that we can build our life on. Help us to build our life on you and what Jesus has done for us. Pray this in his name. Amen.